Thank you, Jariah. It's good to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation and opportunity to serve and minister in this way. Uh, we were last here at Family Five, I think, three years ago, because we, we just missed the transition. I think we would have been here, Doug Farrell's, last year. Uh, and so it is good to see some familiar faces back. We were here as campers, and so we were very excited not only just to get the invitation, but to find out uh, it was Family Five. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 4, we'll be there in just a moment. Now, if I were back at my congregation where I'm serving now at Brown Street, I'm just going to let you know, this is not how I would normally would preach. I would wear a tie because my wife makes me wear a tie, <laughs> um, among other things. But I did, I did take my tie off once, uh, and I, I heard audible gasps in the congregation. It, it was that, that kind of a thing. Um, but we are at camp, so this is probably going to be the only time I'll be in a coat this week because it's Sunday and we have traditions. Um, but what we are going to do today, which I normally would not do on a Sunday, but I'm going to try to do it this week because we're at camp, we're going to tell a few dad jokes, because I'm also a dad. So some of these, you might need a laugh, some of you, you might have other responses, but that, that's kind of the point here, too. They're not bad jokes, they are dad jokes. So this is, this is talking about my wife in a more general sense, this first one. So this is not really reflective of our life. This is just to get, elicit the, the desired groan. My wife has this weird case of OCD where she organizes the dinner plates according to the year we bought them. It's an extremely rare disorder. <laughs> All right. Another one that's not up on the screen, she's really having some concerns with my obsession with astronomy. What planet is she on? All right, there we go. Uh, you know that I'm a pastor. I stepped out of my office for a minute, and when I came back, the last printed page of my sermon was missing. I think someone put it on a shelf higher than I can reach, but I don't want to jump to conclusions. All right. One last one to get us on a little bit more on topic. This is actually, I'm beginning to realize as I put it up here, and I'm probably showing my age now. I'm turning 47 next month. But the topic that we're going to be touching on this week and try to introduce this morning and expand on through the rest of the week uh, is the idea of defining worship. And more specifically, as individuals and as congregations, how do we express that worship? What does God's Word call us to do in a corporate way? Now, I'm 47 almost, and I've grown up in an era where a lot of you as adults as well, we've fought in congregations like ours what we've called the worship wars. We have disagreements over even things like, do we put words up on screens or do we hold hymnals? What instruments do we use and that kind of thing? I'm not seeking to settle anything like that today because even if I tried to think that I could settle it, experience tells me, you are going to go back to your church and do what your churches do. And so we're not going to try to fight those, but reflecting back on some of those times uh, where we were having some of those struggles, this is, this is what it looks like when you've sung out of a hymnal your entire life, and then suddenly they're projecting words on a screen. <laughs> and for some of us, we're in churches 
that we're still having some of those tensions. Now, we'll talk a little bit about that more on Tuesday, so that's what you have to look forward to. We're specifically going to be talking about music and singing and how we should be doing that uh, in a corporate setting. Uh, Phil was kind of, I think Phil was cracking on me a little bit this morning because I tend not to be like all bouncy and clappy, that kind of thing. Because, you know, if it comes to the Baptist, the more traditional Baptist style of worship or the Pentecostal style of worship, I prefer Baptist hands down. (laughs) So, there we are. Um, And we do have to understand in these times of discussion that, even as Jariah and I were talking close to 11 o'clock last night, which is going to, I have a feeling that I'm not going to get a lot of sleep because we have a common area there in the retreat center where we're staying, and when we add Mike Hess to it, um, it there's just, I, I anticipate late nights. Um, but we were having discussion last night, just how, to, how do we process the differences in expression? By the way, I appreciated, Andrew, what you did here this morning. Uh, I'm really excited. If that's reflective of the kind of music we're going to be singing this week, uh, I, I am really looking forward to it. Uh, I think the era that we're living in now, whatever else is happening with church music, we're seeing a great resurgence of both grabbing on to the old hymns, but introducing a new era of hymnody uh, in the church today. If, if you aren't familiar with some of those songs, and there's at least one there that I didn't know, the one that he introduced during the offering, that I'm going to have to figure out who wrote that and where I can get that. Uh, But there's some great material that's being produced. That one by Matt Boswell that we just sang, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, has become a great favorite of mine. Because it's talking, it it helps us to envision and to capture and to think anew about the person of Christ, what he came to do and what he came to accomplish. It's it's a rich text, but it's not overly complicated. It's in a a melody that's easily retained. Uh, even my congregation, which we're, we're right now the congregation I'm serving in, we're five years away from our centennial. Uh, I've got people who can remember uh, their grandparents going, riding the church bus, and we've got black and white pictures and different things like this, and they're latching on to things like this. These are truths that we ought to unite us, uh, and I think that's one of the emphases that we're seeing that's good, that's happening in churches and across Christianity here in America today. I've asked you to turn to John chapter 4. We're going to try to answer, begin to lay the foundation to answer this question, what is worship? In our modern context that we live in today, we tend to think of worship and, and use that term in a few different ways. Sometimes we talk about worship like it's a genre. You, you, I guess I was going to say sometimes you go into a CD store, but Maybe nobody knows what a CD store is anymore. Um, So maybe you're scrolling on your phone, you're looking at iTunes, and you're going to the different genres and the categories of music. And so you have like adult contemporary, country western, and they, oh look, there's worship. And sometimes that's just another uh, synonym for Christian music, worship music in that way, or praise and worship is a specific genre, a specific category uh, of a kind of produced music, a canned music that we can carry around on our phones or MP3 players or ask Alexa to bring up on the device. 
that kind of a thing. Sometimes worship is thought of in a way where it, it's, it's, it's unbridled enthusiasm, it's a response, it's, but it's like a Christian one. You know, like uh, our, our friends at work, they might go to a, a Taylor Swift concert, but we go to worship experiences. Um, my wife and I uh, ha- are, have been married for a while. We started dating uh, back in the last century, in the early 90s, around there, and it is kind of mind-boggling to think that that was actually the last century. Uh, But before we were married, when my wife and I started dating, she attended uh, for a year uh, at Cedarville University. Uh, I was living in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the time. Uh, I won't go into too many personal details there at the moment, but I would drive down, and and they, they had homecoming weekend, and there was a big concert. They had a big-name artist. I think it was Phillips Craig and Dean. That's probably dating me again there. Uh, so Phillips Craig and Dean was going to do this concert there on campus at Cedarville. And they had this opening act. I don't remember what his name was, but Garth Brooks was popular on the music scene at the time. So this guy came out dressed kind of like Garth Brooks would have. He had the black tuxedo and a big black cowboy hat. And... Just before they introduced him, uh, Dr. Dixon, who was president at the time, came out, I think, with the student body president, and they asked the Lord to bless this worship experience they were getting ready to, uh, to participate in. And so then, the man walks out in a tuxedo, black cowboy hat, and sings, Jesus is my rock, and whoo, I'm on a roll. Um, <laughs> And I was just a little bit, this is interesting. (laughs) And that would have been interesting enough. But then on the bridge between the verses, he whips out a lasso and starts to jump in and out. Is that wrong? Is that right? Not necessarily here to settle that today. But part of my question that I want to ask is not necessary whether is this acceptable or not. Does that qualify as worship? To what kind of grid should we look at in the Word of God to figure out just how we can start to think through that? How do we know what God wants when we respond to Him in this way? So, if you have your Bibles, if you have John chapter 4, this is the conversation with Jesus at the woman at the well at Samaria. So I'll be reading here from John chapter 4. We'll pick up our reading. I should have brought my larger print Bible. I told you I'm almost 47. So we're right here. I can see the verse. Um, I just can't see the number. (laughs) Verse 19. Here we go. So the woman at the well... And Jesus are having a conversation. The woman says to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So, one of the things we're learning here as we look at the text is the worship wars are not unique to our generation or our era or our phase in Christianity. This is something that they were struggling, maybe different specific issues, but they had different ways that they thought they should express their worship to God. Here, 
it was location. Where's the temple? Where's the geographical center for which we come to worship God? Is it in Jerusalem? Is it here on Mount Gerizim? How, what, what does God want? So she's bringing this up, trying to figure out what conclusion do you reach so I can take exception on it and prove you wrong. We can have a friendly debate. Maybe not so friendly. But here's what Jesus says to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, that is the Jews, know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we have to read your word, to spend this time here together entertaining some of these ideas, considering them in our minds and hearts. Lord, help the things that we consider here this morning, uh, not just to bring up interesting points of debate and conversation, uh, but Lord, we pray that you might use your spirit and yours your truth to help us better consider what you want from us, how we should take your truth and with the psalmist, as it says in Psalm 1, meditate on it day and night, that as you told Joshua, that we might observe to do according to all that is written in it so that we could have prosper, prosperity and success. Uh, Father, we want your blessing, but we also want to be able to direct the hearts and minds of those we worship with, those as pastors and teachers that we minister to. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll help us hear better understanding and better being reminded of how we can accomplish that collectively together so that the world can see Jesus Christ magnified in us and through us. This we pray in his name. Amen. So, what is worship? John chapter 4 begins to tell us a little bit about this. Jesus says those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. Some of you have a Bible that says that God is spirit. Some of it says God is a spirit. What's the difference? I, I think the better translation there is God is spirit, as opposed to he is uh, one spirit out of many. I, think, I don't think necessarily either statement is necessarily wrong, but the emphasis Jesus is trying to make is not that God is a spirit, and like you have this spirit here, spirit A, spirit B, spirit C, and that he's one of them. It's trying to talk about, like instead if I would say, you are a person amongst many people, it would be the difference of, between saying that and you are flesh. You are flesh and bone. He's trying to talk about the substance, the means by which God exists. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like you and I do. He exists in some other form, in some other manifestation than we can understand. So how are we going to know him? We are going to be dependent on how he, as a spirit, reveals himself to us physical beings, and he has done so, friends, with his word. He has given to us in his word everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have no doubts, we have no 
need to wonder, and we have no reason to think that he has done so in any other way than what we have here. This is the authoritative revelation of God to us. And so if we are to worship him, and what I'm going to define worship here is that, as you see up here on the screen, that God is the focus. We are looking at him. We are understanding him the way he wants to be understood. This is the definition. If you want to write it down in your notes, there should be some notes in the booklets that you receive that you can use to follow along. Worship, for our simplistic definition here, is responding to God as he has revealed himself. Now, in a group like this, what I have just said should not be at all controversial. We understand that God speaks to us today through his word. This is why when we gather together either at a Baptist camp or in our congregations, we spend time expounding, developing, explaining, reading the word of God. This is how we hear God speak to us today by reading the Bible, by making sure that we understand exactly what it is he wants us to know, that we are digesting, we are meditating upon it so that as we quoted in that prayer to Joshua, Joshua says that he is to do, God tells Joshua that he's supposed to do everything that God wants him to do, that this is supposed to be internalized. You will meditate in it, therein, day and night. Sorry, I learned King James. I'm 47. Uh, that's how I grew up. So I, I still have those words in my head, but you can, it resonates with you. God wants us to know these things. God wants us to understand them. God wants us to consider them so that we know what to do. So as we've said here, he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's talking about how God exists. It's not talking about spirit like we might use it at the football game with the cheerleaders and everybody's got to get riled up and fired up. Now, is it wrong for Christians to be fired up? No. Are there appropriate times where we should get behind something and, and, and have energy and enthusiasm? Absolutely. And you're going to have a lot of that here this week at camp. I, I know from experience and so do many of you. This is part of what we're here to do, to, to renew our zeal, renew our, our enthusiasm. I, I like to talk about urgency, especially when it comes to giving people the gospel. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. It's not something you sit on your hands about, no. Uh, we, we comprehend that intellectually, and we break it down, and we parse it, and look to the thesaurus and the lexicons and everything. There's something to be done. And Christian, if we don't understand that, if we don't understand right feelings leading us to right kind of actions, then we're not going to really be in a position where God can use us. But in spirit and in truth has less to do here with necessarily the exuberance of our feelings, and more about how God is giving us his truth. So, what we aren't looking for, and where some of our Christian friends get it wrong sometimes, is that God has given us his truth here. Sometimes we mistake it in broad Christianity that God is a spirit, and so he's leaving me subjective 
impressions. He's telling me unique things that are for me here now that he may or may not be telling somebody else. Now, does God lead individuals? Yes, he does. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But does God reveal himself authoritatively to individuals the same way he does with this? We should all be shaking our heads. No, because God is spoken unto us here, as Hebrews chapter 1 says, in these last days to us by his Son. And his Son has given us the word. This is where our confidence lies. And if, he, if anybody is telling you something different, that God has revealed himself to them in a way that contradicts or is extra added on to what we see here, that is not what we've been called to. We are looking at the objective truth of Scripture. So, question here. I want you to think and respond with me a little bit. Um, when I was living in Grand Rapids back in the last century, um, I happened to be listening to one of the local Christian radio stations, and there's, there's a few different ones. Grand Rapids, Michigan, if you've never been there, there's literally uh, a church for every two blocks in town. Okay, I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but only a little bit. There, there are many different churches uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You have the headquarters of the Christian Reformed Church. There are more concentrated churches in the GRBC in Kent County, Michigan, which is where Grand Rapids is, than any other place uh, in the United States. Uh, there are Pentecostal churches. That's where Uncle Charlie from Children's Bible Hour lives. I mean, there's, there's lots of different things that are happening there in the religious world. But I remember listening to a radio station there, and it was like a Saturday morning, so it was probably like she got the shift that nobody else wanted to work. Uh, and there, there's this DJ on the, the radio station, and she's trying to impress upon people why you should pick a certain Bible translation over a different one. And she says, there's so many different ones out there, and so really what you need to do is you just need to consult them all and find the, find the one that says what you want it to say. I, I think I know what she meant, but I don't think she said it right. <laughs> um, because why don't we want to find the Bible that says what we want it to say. What, what's the problem? Think through that with me. What's, what, in, what strikes you as being off about that statement? I, I heard a couple of... What's that? Okay, it's self-centered. Dan? Right? What we want is not good. When we're looking, and Chad says it's what we want it to say, not what we're looking for God to say to us. And, and that's exactly right. When we look to the Bible, we want to maybe understand what God is saying, but we're not looking for, okay, I want to find the Bible that justifies my line of reasoning or allows me to do what I really want to do. We are looking to conform ourselves to what God's commands are. Are. We need to understand those. We need to be able to process that. But we don't want a Bible that just says what we want it to say as much as we do a Bible 
that is going to be clearly understood so that we can clearly live it out. So here, what we've talked about here to this point is the idea of objective truth. That we know who God is, we know what he has sent his son to do, we know that he has revealed himself in the pages of his word, but you say, well then, what do I do when I need to know, let's say, the, the typical teenage thing that you struggle with when you're young is, who does God want me to marry? Well, I, I looked that up in the Bible, and, you know, I, I can't find anything. Back in my day, I guess we'd look at Strong's Concordance. Maybe this day, these days you look at Google or something. But you try to find that passage in the Bible, and I don't, it doesn't get that specific. How do I find God's subjective direction for my life. Well, we aren't going to deny here that just because God gives us objective truth that's true for everyone, that there's not different applications. God has a specific will for each one of us, and we need to understand that. We take principles, generally, and apply it subjectively to each one of our lives. I'm going to have different applications as a nearly 47-year-old man with seven kids who lives in Illinois, roots for the Boston Red Sox, as a pastor of a Baptist church, than necessarily somebody who's here, who's 12 years old, looking at startup school again in another month, uh, plays soccer, uh, and has two older brothers and two younger sisters. There's going to be different kinds of application, different levels of what obedience to God looks like in those kind of circumstances. There is a subjective will for each one of us individually. That's part of what we should be trying to process. We know what God wants us to do. We know things like he wants us, each one of us, whether I'm talking about the 12-year-old or the 47-year-old, he wants us to tell the truth. He wants us to be, as much as possible, as much as lies with us, live peaceably with all men. He does not want us to forsake the assembling of ourselves together if we're both believers. Does he want us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Those are consistent across the board. Those are true for each one of us. But there are going to be different things. Does he want this 12-year-old to love his wife as he loves his own flesh? Well, probably not at 12, unless you live in some other country where they process it differently. Okay. But not probably where he's at at his stage of life. Does he want me to obey my parents, who live in Florida, the same way that he wants him to obey his parents? Again, different stage of life, different specific applications. Does he want this 12-year-old to take the things that he has learned and among many witnesses to commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Again, probably not in the same way that he's asking me to. Different, specific, subjective applications. I'm just giving you the example there to help you understand that God has objective truth for all of us, but subjective truth that we have to take these commands and apply to where we live. 
So if God has revealed himself to us in his word, he's given us subjective truth, and he's given us different elements, we are responding to him as he wants us to, here in the pages of his word. So we could think through some things here again. What do those responses, what does obedience look like in our different situations? But also, how do we respond to what he's shown us, what he's told us about himself? We have God telling us, for example, that he is holy, that he is, trans, he is separate from sin. He is separate from our sphere of existence. So, we take holiness up here on the, on the board. How do you see the Bible portraying people when they are confronted with the holiness of God? What are responses that are recorded there in Scripture. Well, for one, we could go to Isaiah. Isaiah sees God on Isaiah 6, seated high and on a throne. And he breaks out the cowboy hat, the tuxedo, and the lasso, right? No, that's not, that's not how he responds at all. How does he respond when confronted with the holiness of God? I think one term we could use, if we're just using one term, is apprehension. Woe is me, for I am undone, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He doesn't hardly even want to talk. He, he's, he's, he's frozen in fear. He's overwhelmed with his own sinfulness. You can see a similar response when Job is confronted with God in Job chapter 40, verses 4 and 5. We'll not take the time to turn there this morning, but he has that same sense of dread of fear, of not just seeing how awesome and how majestic God is, but in the same breath, contrasting that with who he is, with the reality of God is holy, God can't tolerate sin, and uh-oh, look at me. John Calvin, the great theologian, says that we can't really begin to understand just how sinful we as human beings are until we contrast it with a holy and righteous God. And understand just how holy, just how righteous, just how completely distinct from sin that he is. On the other hand, we can't really understand just how sinful we are until we begin to comprehend and really wrap our minds around the holiness of God. When we compare ourselves among ourselves, you know, we can get a false perspective uh, you know, if I'm thinking, if I'm looking at God, and say, I, I can say, oh man, I, I, there's so much that I need to get right. There's so much of me that's tainted and evil. But if I'm comparing myself with Don Timmerman, my father-in-law here, hey, I'm not that bad a guy. <laughs> Just kidding. Dad. Um, but that's, that's how, what we can do. And if it's not Don Timmerman, it's somebody else. You can look at somebody and say, okay, yeah, I'm not as good as God, but like the, the priest and the publican that we have, the, the, the priest and the tax collector in the story that Jesus tells, I thank God that I'm not like this guy. I fast twice a day. I, you know, I do this kind of thing. I go, I go to family camp five, not to family camp one where all the re unregenerate people go over there. You know. Um, <laughs> We can do lots of different things to try to justify our own goodness when we compare ourselves to the wrong standards. 
That's one of the reasons why, with God's holiness, we're called to compare ourselves to the one true righteous standard. And that's one of the reasons why, as Christians, it's important to gather regularly to be confronted by that. Because it's all too easy to get the wrong sense of confidence out there in the world, out there with all the snowflakes and the social justice warriors and the kids who, you know, just walk around on their screens all day and, you know, whatever else we're comparing. We can make ourselves frustrated. We can make ourselves feel pretty self-important, get the different priorities out of order. Coming to church, coming to worship God ought to be a reset. It ought to be putting ourselves back into perspective, seeing the world a little bit more through the lens that God wants us to process. So think with me a couple other things. I've given you some ideas of, of how we respond to God's holiness with maybe out of that, understanding our sinfulness, being driven to confess our sins, being driven to humility, being driven to serve other people, because God is holy, and yet a holy God sent his son to die on the cross. Another good modern song that we sing at our church is the gospel song, Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. By his death I live again. Just simple phrases, but that capture that a holy God humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And what does that mean? If a holy God can do that, why would I hold back? Why wouldn't I see it in my position to serve others as well? To, to get out of my comfort zone, to get out of what I should be doing and watching the football game or, or doing all the other things and, and getting those things in priority that I have a responsibility to as I challenged my church this last week, not just to be a friendly church, but to remember that people come to church to find friends, not just to be happily greeted at the door. They're looking for relationships, and those relationships are opportunities for you to communicate Christ to them, because that's what a holy God did for us. When we look at a concept like God's justice, Justice is a good buzzword in our society today and means lots of different things. But God demands what is right. If there's a, right, uh, a wrong that's been done, vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay, says the Lord. There's a, there's a clear sense of black and white, right and wrong. God has a sense of justice and retribution. Okay, so if we understand that, in the Bible, what are some ways that we could or should respond to that? Individually, corporately. What does that mean for us? Okay, Dan? Okay. Making sure that something like the abortion issue. You say, well, that's, 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 that's politics, Pastor. Don't bring that up here. But there's something in our society where there are people who are having atrocities committed to them. And we're not talking about turtles and plastic straws. Um, 
even though they might need you, to, I suppose, the turtles, but, but there's bigger things at stake. We need to be mindful that God desires us to defend the fatherless, defend the orphan and the widow. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, James 1.27, to visit the orphans and the widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. God takes pity on those who have been wrong. God shows his, we could say the third blank, mercy. Mercy. He withholds from us as human beings what we deserve because of our sin. So what does what God's word tell us should be an appropriate response? Well, Romans 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you do what? That you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. If God is merciful and withholding from us what we deserve, he has provided salvation and grace, giving us what we didn't deserve, what should we do with that? In response to a merciful God whose benefits are overwhelming to us, we present ourselves back to him. We present ourselves in service for him to others, to his people. That's part of what we're supposed to be when we are the church. So these, as we've thought through it a little bit, this is what we think of when we think of individual responses. But we could also say that when we start putting all those collective responses together, each one of us serving, each one of us extending ourselves, when we gather together, not as Family Camp 5, this is just a week, we're going back to our churches in Slater or Green or Grafton, I think I heard a Grafton out there talking to somebody at lunch, or 4th Baptist or Alt Brown Street Baptist in Alton, Illinois. We're all going back to these different places to be bricks in the wall, to quote the noted theologian Pink Floyd. Um, such some of you, that just goes over your head. You were raised, you were raised right. If you don't know who he is, that's, a, that's, that's fine. Um, but we are being collectively part of something bigger than just one of us. We are each one, as it says here in 1 Peter 2.5, as living stones being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That God's putting us together collectively that we can build up a structure where he can be seen, where Jesus Christ is more visible because each one of us doing our part, what does Jesus say to his disciples? How are they going to know you're my followers? By the love that you have to each other, not how much that you're giving out necessarily to the community in a food pantry or other things. Those things can be good, but they're seeing how you're magnified through the relationships you're forming, through the good that you're doing to each other. Those people at fill-in-the-blank Baptist Church, they really enjoy one another's company. They really know how to invest, and they really know how to extend themselves for me. They care about me. They want to know about. And through that, Jesus Christ can be magnified. Because in the end, friends, what we're talking about here 
is not just the type of music that we sing or the translation of the Bible that we might read from. We're talking about corporate worship in action because we are responding to a holy God. We're doing the things that he's called us to do. At the same time, we do have a collective experience. We have church services that we come together to do different things. And so that's really, as we understand that the the activities that we do in a church service help empower us, remind us to what we should be doing, how we should be functioning as local congregations, I'm going to try to help you to think This is how God says the activities that we should do when we gather here through the week. This is what we're going to be trying to focus our attention on. So we don't have a lot of time to to do the discussion question there, so I'm just going to keep moving on. So how am I going to be approaching this? I'll just give you a couple of words of explanation as we start to come to our conclusion. I think the, the dinner people are starting to move next door. But what we're going to talk about here is corporate worship. So I'm going to be approaching this this week, uh, distinguishing between that and individual worship. Each one of us has different ways that we should be obeying God. I'm going to talk about this and be approaching it. Some pastors might know what I'm talking about more than others. Well, I'm going to be talking about the regulative principle versus the normative principle. So what that means for those of you who don't understand, regulative principle means if the Bible gives it to us as a prescription, that's what we're allowed to do. And we can't do anything else. So we can't have necessarily liturgical dance. Uh, some churches do that. We never have that command in the New Testament. You say, well, pastor, what about, uh, it says in Psalm 150, to praise him with the timbrel and the dance. We'll talk about that on Tuesday. All right, so that, that we'll just tease that a little bit. But the normative principle comes from the other end. What says basically if the Bible doesn't forbid it, then it's open. It's fair game. I'm not taking that approach. We'll talk a little bit about more of why uh, in the sessions in the morning this week. But I'm going to take the idea that the Bible prescribes, it lays out for us certain ways we should worship God when the church gathers. I'm also going to say, as I said earlier in the beginning, we may reach different applications. Some of you might use a different instrument style, might sing from a different collection of songs, might have a different guy like instead of standing behind the keyboard, he's waving his arms or doing different things. I'm not going to talk too much about which way is the right way or the best way, because we might have different applications. But across the variety of applications, we should all be aiming for the same objectives and what we're trying to do to magnify God and to make him more readily seen. So what does the Bible prescribe for corporate worship? I'm going to say... 1 Timothy chapter 4.13, it says, Paul tells Timothy that you should devote yourself to reading. You should devote yourself to reading, to exhortation, and, and, and different things like this. If you have an ESV, it actually goes so far as to tell you what you should be reading, not you should be reading the latest John Grisham novel or, or reading the Des Moines Register. Or different. It says you should devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Why? Again, because this is where God speaks to us. This is where we can know objectively what he wants us to know. But when the church gathers, we're not just coming to read scripture, we're also coming to hear it 
preached, to be taught, and to be explained. We preach the word in our instant in season and out of season. We're ready to explain. We're ready not just to explain it, but to apply it, to help people know that God needs to be obeyed. His word is relevant just the same today in 2018 as it was in the first century when the New Testament was written. That's part of what we need to know. We have to put it in context of what it means here, original meaning, but also what does God want us to do today because his truth is relevant for us today. So tomorrow, during the morning session, we will talk both about reading scripture publicly, spending time in it, but also contrasting that with preaching. How much time should we devote in our organized services to reading the Bible versus only reading the text before the pastor preaches? We'll talk a little bit about that. We get together in church to sing. Do you understand that these verses talk about not just that singing is there to generate enthusiasm and feeling. Colossians 3.16 says that we teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Music, done rightly, shouldn't just release a sense of unbridled enthusiasm and happiness, although that's part of it, but it should also instruct us. It's a time where we're teaching each other. We're impressing on those, on those minds and hearts that we're influencing, things that are going to be retained. Even with my own kids, some of whom can't read yet, they know the words to things like in Christ alone or amazing grace because they've sung them. They've also know that Arby's has the meats, but... That's another thing for another time. We get together to pray. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 tells us that Paul says, I would that all men everywhere would pray for kings, for those who are in authority. It gives us a list of those things. But we pray to God, knowing that this is how he makes himself known. This is how he helps us to see his will. We practice the ordinances, which if you've memorized the good Baptist acrostic like we were taught at faith, if you went to faith, that we have two ordinances, which are baptism and communion. And we get together and understand that this is stuff we're supposed to do when the church gathers. So we don't have baptisms here in the pool, unless your whole church is there. We'll talk a little bit about that, but I don't have, there was one of these I had to cut and ordinances is probably where we're going to spend the least amount of time because we, unless you, you want to stay through Saturday, which I don't think the camp would enjoy. So the final one that we'll talk about on Thursday morning is giving. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. When the church gathers, Paul says, on the first day of the week. That was their tradition. That's what was regulated and prescribed there in the New Testament. So we'll have some time to break some of those things down, but that's how God wants us to worship him. That's the things that churches do when they gather. Well, pastor, you didn't talk about announcements. <laughs> we might touch on that even, too. I think the announcements and things like that do have their place, but how? Because that's not one of those things that we just read about. So start thinking. You can even look ahead in the notes to see which direction we're going. Have questions. We'll try to be interactive 
through this time. This is probably going to be the most one uh, monologue that I do this week. I'm really going to try to get down on the floor, interacting a little bit more with you, helping you to think through how can we accomplish this better so that God is more evidently seen in our lives individually and through us together congregationally in the places where God has brought us to serve him. So with that said, let's bow with prayer, and then Andrew's going to come and lead us in a closing song. Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we've had here to open your word, to understand that you, who exist in a way that is far different than we can comprehend or understand, you are infinite, you are limitless, you are all-powerful, you are able to see into our minds and thoughts, and yet you understand who we are, you understand just how reprehensible uh, and uh, objectionable our lives would be on our own, but you provided for us a means for sinful people to be reconciled with you, not to just be uh, confirmed in, in forgiveness, but actually to be called your sons and daughters, because we are clothed not in the sinful rags of our own righteousness, but we have been infused with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because he bore the penalty for our sins on the cross of Calvary, and to make us no longer your enemies, but your children. Lord, we are so grateful for the grace and mercy that you demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ. Help us as we learn together this week to know better how to appreciate you, to adore you, to give you the worth that you are due for everything that you are and for all that you have done. Lord, we bless your name and we love you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.